0: or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FPC. We're, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are trudging through learning all of these different things that Mark has for us in his Gospel, and, and uh, today we're coming to a section, and we're going to be starting in chapter 7, verse 24, and we're going to go through to chapter 8, verse 10, and this is a, a really interesting section. Um, Jesus heads for the region of Tyre. And we need to understand this morning that that's not just merely anecdotal. Uh, It's not just sort of a a passing note that Mark makes, but that that has some significance. And his readers would have recognized what that meant, and they would have been beginning to process what's going on in terms of the region that that, uh, Jesus and his disciples have headed to. Um, the, The region of Tyre was Gentile. It was a solidly Gentile territory, and so according to historian Josephus, um, that region were notoriously opposed to the Jewish people, Uh, and and they were bitter enemies of the Jewish people, and it worked both ways. It wasn't just that they were upset with the Jewish people or that the Jewish people were upset with them. They, They were enemies. They knew each other, and they weren't excited about each other, and so... Mark's readers would have recognized that fact and they would have been interpreting the events that Mark is writing about within that context. They would have been processing everything that's going on with that as a backdrop in the back of their mind. And so we need to be aware of that this morning because, first of all, in regard to these specific events, then it's that fact speaks into what's going on here specifically. But secondly, we need to understand that background because overall, and the, overall, the overarching message that Mark has for us as we hit this section of his, of his gospel, we need to have that backdrop as well, because Mark does have an overarching message beyond just these specific events. So we're going to take a look at those things today. We're going to start with the specific events, then we're going to come back and take a look at that overarching message. But before we do, would you join me once more in praying and just asking God to come and speak to us as we engage with him this morning? Father, today, I pray that you would be here and that you would work in our midst. And Lord, not just in our midst. I pray that you would work in each of us individually, that you would come and that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear from you today. That as we follow Mark, as he writes about the work of your son, God, this morning that that would come alive for us, that it wouldn't just be words on a page, that it wouldn't just be events that we read about, but that we would actually step into the, that context ourselves and that we would understand it from that context ourselves and that it would make a difference for us here and now today as well. And not just for ourselves, Lord, but for also for our community, for the world around us, that we would be a testimony for you as we understand what you've done for us even better. So I ask these things now. I pray these things in your son's name. And I ask them for his sake and his sake alone. Amen. All right, this morning, this is actually one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And it didn't used to be that way. As a matter of fact, for a long time, this passage was problematic to me. I would come to it and I'd think, like, what is going on here? It it was difficult to understand. You'd read it and like, wow, that doesn't make sense. I don't think that's where I see Jesus going. Like, doesn't seem to be in character here. And, and, and what's he really driving at and what's going on? Primarily the problem I had was it, was, it seems so derogatory. Like, Jesus comes out and he's so pejorative in his, in his treatment of this woman. And like, how does that work exactly? Like, I mean, that's not how Jesus is supposed to be. And then what's even more perplexing is that he starts off being so difficult with her and then by the end he's so impressed with her and he, and he dispatches her saying, you know, way to go. So how, how does that all work? So I'd come to this pass in, passage and I'd kind of just skip by it. I'd, I'd, I'd read it, scratch my head a little bit and keep going on. Let's get on with the, the healing of the deaf and mute man. That, that works for me. Now we're back in familiar territory. I can can deal with that a lot better. But as we dig into this just a little bit, just even just a little bit, all of a sudden the clouds part and we begin to see what Jesus is up to and and how intentional he is. How how focused he is on ministry and in in meeting people and understanding them and having them understand him. And so I've come to love this passage. And we're going to pick it up this morning in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. We're just going to read 24, 25, and 26 to begin with. There it says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. We've heard that before, haven't we? Trying to, trying to have just a little bit of a break. So he comes in, he doesn't want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret again. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so as we come to this this morning, we need to understand and recognize a few things. First of all, we need to know that this lady has absolutely no standing whatsoever from a Jewish perspective. That as she comes to Jesus, she has absolutely no reason to be approaching him. First of all, she's a woman, which was a problem in a male-dominated society and culture. Not only is she a woman, she's a Greek, a Gentile. So she's a Gentile woman, which is like double jeopardy. Two strikes. And then thirdly, strike number three. We find out that she's a Syrian Phoenician, which was an area that was particularly loathsome to the Jewish people. The Jewish people reviled these people. They they were not friendly. And it was vice versa. It 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 was reciprocated. These people didn't like the Jewish people either. So they went head to head. They butted heads all the time. Now, this wouldn't have been unknown to the the lady. It's not like this was news to her or that she was oblivious to what was going on. She would have recognized that for her to approach a male Jew would have been offensive. That would have been a problem. And in so much as that was the fact, she would have recognized then that her approaching him might actually be contrary, defeating a risk to her objective. That she's coming to him, wanting him to heal her daughter. And yet in approaching him, that she might be risking Exactly what she's coming to him for. At the very same time, she would have recognized that from her culture that she's outside the lines. People would have been looking at her and going like, what what are you doing? What are you doing? Falling at the feet of a Jew. What's up with that? Where's your head? So in seeking... Jesus out and falling at his feet and begging him now to heal her daughter, at the very least, at the very least, we have to understand her desperation. This speaks to her desperation and her concern for her daughter. But I think it points to a whole lot more than just desperation. We just read, we've seen over and over how Jesus' reputation by this point was preceding him everywhere he went. And it's the same here. He arrives and he's looking to keep it all quiet. But he can't. His reputation precedes him and people are coming. And this woman is among them. They were well informed about what he was doing. They were well informed about what he could do. And they wanted to see, and this lady wanted to see him. She wanted an audience with him. And so she comes. And very shortly we're going to see what I think is evidence of the fact that she had done her homework. She had studied, she had honed up a little bit on this Jesus guy and what he was all about and what he was capable of. And not only had she done some research, I think she'd arrived at some conclusions about who she believed that he was. Because what follows now is this verbal jousting match, if you will. It's short, but it's pithy. There's this conversational repartee that happens between Jesus and this lady. And to understand it, we need to be aware of a a couple of things in particular. First, we need to understand that the Jews often referred to themselves as the children of Israel or the children of God. So when Jesus references here the children, we need to understand that he's referencing the Jews. And secondly, We need to understand this, that dogs were generally regarded by both Jew and Gentile as dirty animals. They they were not man's best friend. They were unclean, loathsome little creatures. They ran around, they ate garbage in the streets. They would even feed on corpses and things like that. They were unclean and to be avoided and so to refer to somebody as a dog was was horribly derogatory there's lots of evidence of teaching in jewish circles where they would refer to the gentiles as dogs unclean people people to be reviled and vice versa that the Jews were loathsome people, like dogs, to be reviled. So as this woman comes begging him for help, Jesus responds with this seemingly harsh word for her. Verse 27 says, he says to her, remember she's she's begging at his feet, she looks down, he looks down at her and he says, First let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What Jesus just said to her would not have been lost on that lady. It wouldn't have gone over her head. It wouldn't have flown by. She wouldn't have looked at him and kind of went, Huh? like maybe you and I do today as we read this passage. What's up with that? I don't know. That, that wouldn't be the case. She knew what had happened. She recognized that Jesus was pointing to the priority of the Jews. And she would have caught the fact that he had just referred to her as a dog. And at that point she could have turned and walked away, right? Wouldn't we? If we'd come to this Jesus guy and we were hoping that he might intervene in our world in some way and he refers to us and says, "No, no, 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 wait a second. You you don't get this stuff. First, you you're a dog." wouldn't we have walked away? I think most of us would have. We would have hung our heads, turned around and walked away and said to ourselves, well, if that's all he's about, well, forget it. If he's going to refer to me as a dog, well, then whatever. Dude, I'm out of here. But she doesn't. It's not at all what happens. Instead, she seizes on two openings that Jesus left in his reply to her. And she engages with him through those two avenues. Number one, Jesus begins his response to the woman with the word first. First, let the children eat all they want, he says. And she recognizes, therefore, that he hasn't just indicated to her that there is only food for the Jews. But rather, that he has a plan by which he's feeding them. That she's not excluded, but that there's just a priority order that he's going through in bringing them the nourishment and the sustenance that they need. Second, she picks up on the fact that the word that Jesus uses for dog in this instance doesn't refer specifically to the ones out on the street running around eating garbage, but rather to dogs that are often generally understood to be pets that live within the context of a home. And so this lady listens and she hears Jesus' response and then she dives in. And what she does is she inserts herself right into the analogy. She, she engages. She doesn't bypass it. She embraces it and puts herself right there in, in, in the context of what Jesus is saying. Verse 28, she says, Lord, she replied, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't take issue with the fact that Jesus said that for some reason he's going to feed the Jewish people first. She recognizes, she's counting on the fact that there's going to be more than enough food to feed the children and that there's going to be leftovers for others as well. Secondly, she doesn't take issue with just having been referred to as a dog or a pet. In fact, she's confident that in the right home with the right master, there will be more than enough that all of the children, the servants, and the pets will be taken care of. In that home. With the right master. Everyone is going to be looked after. There won't be. Anyone that goes without. That's left hungry. And so she engages with him. She says. Let me eat of the crumbs. And Jesus turns to her. Verse 29, he says, And then he told her, For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Past tense. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the parable of the sower, and the soils. And Jesus began that parable by saying to the people, listen, if you have ears, hear what I'm about to say. And he goes on to explain that the key to discovering the secret of the kingdom of God is in engaging with me. As we engage with Jesus, then we discover the secret of the kingdom of God. And here we see that play out in spades. It's the first time that someone has actually engaged with Jesus in the parable, has sought to understand, has put herself in that position and engaged with Jesus to understand and to have him speak into her world. She listened to what he said. She engaged with him in what he said. And she discovered right in front of her the secret of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself. How often is it that you and I come to God with a request? But we've predetermined what we want Him to say, what we want, him, want to hear back from Him. We've come with the request. And we've also come with the answer. Hear God, this is what you need to do now. And when we hear the response from God, or when we don't hear the response from God, immediately the way that we want it, we turn and we walk away. We're disillusioned, we're disappointed, we're upset. We don't engage. We fold our tens. This lady serves as a prime example for us of what Christ is looking for from each of us. Our relationship with him. Where we engage with him. Where we hear him. Where we respond to him. And where he can do things in our lives according to the way that he wants to do things for his purposes and his pleasure, by his power, and for our good. Next we come to Christ's healing of the deaf and mute man. And we're going to pick this up in verse 32 quickly. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Now, much can be said about this section, but for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to limit my comments to one specific aspect of this event. In verse 32, the Greek word that is translated here as could hardly talk is the same word that is used in Isaiah 35. And people smarter than I am tell me that there are only two occurrences in Scripture where this word is used. Isaiah 35 and Mark 7. And so we see Mark here taking great pains to connect the dots for us. He's very specific so that we don't miss it. He wants us to connect Isaiah 35 with what he's talking about here in this account of healing the deaf and mute man. Isaiah 35 follows a number of God's judgments. God is pronouncing his judgments on regions. One of which is Tyre, actually, as you go back and read. So he's pronouncing judgment, he's pronouncing judgment, and pronouncing judgment, and then he comes, we come to, to Isaiah 35, and the focus shifts. Instead of pronouncing judgment, Isaiah 35 pronounces the coming joy that will arrive at the revelation of the Lord. When the Lord is revealed, the joy that will be there at that time. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 say this. Then, at the revelation of the Lord, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In connecting this miracle so directly with Isaiah 35, Mark is making sure that we don't miss the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. Don't miss it. From the the outset of his gospel, from the very first line, Mark is proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he's presenting his argument for us to weigh this evidence and go, yes, we believe as well. This is the Messiah. This is the prophesied one. And so he comes along and he points to Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecy here in Isaiah 35. The one that is going to make the deaf hear, the one that is going to make the mute be able to talk, is here. Here he is. He's just done it. Don't miss it. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Moreover, beyond this as well, the reference to Lebanon in Isaiah 35 verse 2 is the same region as Jesus is now ministering in. So the connection here is not just in what Jesus has done. But the fulfillment of the prophecy comes down to the fact as well that he is doing it where it was prophesied to happen. It underlines Christ's miracle by the fact of where he is doing it. Moving on quickly. Mark chapter 8 verses 1 to 10 give us the story, the account of the feeding of the 4,000 this time. Now, as with the feeding of the 5,000, here again, there are many parallels with the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt, with God's provision for them in the desert. Here again, this takes place in a remote region, a wilderness area, even maybe more remote than the area where the feeding of the 5,000 had been. Here again, Jesus miraculously provides for the people, just as God had done back in the Old Testament. Here again, as with the manna and the quail, there was an abundance, an overabundance, more than the people needed. And here again, there's more than is necessary There's leftovers. And just as God had demonstrated his compassion to the people in leading them out of the bondage of the Egyptians, Jesus demonstrates his compassion for the people here as well as he provides for them and cares for them. The parallels between what God was doing then and what Jesus is doing now are strongly drawn again by Mark, begging the question, do you see who it is that we're dealing with? Do you recognize who Jesus is really? Do you understand He's the Son of God? He's the Messiah. He's the prophesied one. But this time, There's a significant difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 here. Because this time, this miracle happens in Gentile territory and with a Gentile crowd. So here... Mark presents to us and we need to understand that God is leading not just the children of Israel out of bondage, but Gentiles as well. Not just them, but us too. Which points us nicely back to Mark's overarching message in this section. As we come to this passage in the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples have heretofore been in Jewish territory and have been ministering to predominantly Jewish people. And last week, as Ryan was unpacking it for us, we see that he was engaging with the Jewish leaders. But all of a sudden... Jesus decides now to go into Gentile territory. This would have been a mind blow. A complete mind blow. To Gentiles and Jews alike. As I talked about earlier, everyone understood the nature of this relationship. It wasn't pretty. They were bitter rivals. And into that mess... into that tension, into that ugliness, comes Jesus with a whole different mindset. Don't, don't miss this now. Right on the heels of last week, where Jesus has been arguing with the Jewish officials and he, and he pronounces all food clean. Jesus comes now And in effect, pronounces all people clean. All people clean. Not just all food now, but all people clean. I am here now for everyone. I'm not just here for the Jews. And they would have been going, what? I'm here for the Gentiles too. And they would have been going, what? What is up with this? The Messiah of the Jews is the Messiah of the Gentiles too. And we come to this and we read it and we go, yeah, yay Jesus, right? This is awesome. God is good. He's for everybody. But but, but wait a minute, not quite so fast. Because as Jesus demonstrates that all people are clean, at the very same time, he is calling you and I out. Just as he was with the Jewish leaders and calling them out about unclean and clean food, saying, I declare all food clean. And he, he, he calls out their religiosity like Ryan unpacked for us last week. Now Jesus comes along and says all people are clean. But as he does so, he calls you and I out. Who is it that we revile today? We say yo yay Jesus. Go God. But in our hearts, where are we at today? Who is it that we revile? Is it Muslims? Dirty dogs? Is it natives? They want anything to do with that. Is it teenagers? Is it seniors? Is it New Democrats? Is it liberals? Is it conservatives? Don't want anything to do with them. Whatever happens to them, they, got, they deserve what's coming. Maybe it isn't a group today for you and for me. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's some students. Maybe it's your ex. This morning, through Mark, Jesus is saying to us as his disciples, come with me. It's time now to go to the area, the region of the Gentiles. We've got some ministry to do. And as his disciples, he's asking us, will you follow me? Will you come? Will you minister to them? Do you understand that I've come for everyone? I've come for everyone. Will you join me in that? It doesn't come naturally. At least it doesn't for me. And so over and over, I need to learn to think in and engage with God and ask Him to change my heart so that I can have that same compassion that He has for all people. So that in the course of my day, as He leads me into new territory, out of my culture, out of the territory of the ones that I love, and into a different part of my world, I need to learn to go with Him. I need to learn to love like He loves and have that compassion. I need to be reminded day by day, that the mission that God calls me to, the reason that I'm here is not a political cause. It's not a cultural cause. It's a spiritual cause. It's a spiritual mission. And I need to ask him for his help so that then I can think out and that I can go And that I can engage with the world around me. With the message of Jesus. The gospel of Christ. This morning, it's so fitting that we come to communion because at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. All the same. All of us, simply sinners in need of a savior and on the cross jesus demonstrated for us that he came for everyone not just me not just my family not just my culture but everyone such is the sacrifice Let's pray. Father, once more this morning, come before you. Thank you for your word to us through Mark. I ask God that you would help us to be like the Syrophoenician woman, that we would engage with you day by day, that you would speak into our lives, that you would help us to become the people that you want us to be, and that by faith we would respond to you. Lord, thank you for the gift of your Son. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to come and sacrifice yourself on our behalf, that we might have this opportunity to know God, to know you, and to be used by you to help others come to that same point. I pray, God, that today as we've heard from you, that you would make us different people again. Day by day, changing us over and over, refining us so that we would be like Jesus. And I ask this now in your precious name and for Jesus' sake alone, on account of all that he has done for us. Amen.